welcome to Not Alone in the Land podcast, a discussion on mental health with advocates and experts on topics to end the stigma and increase awareness in the community. Here are your hosts, Portia Booker and Megan Rochford. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Not Alone in the Land podcast. I'm your host, Portia Booker, and I'm joined by my co-host, Miss Megan Rochford. Megan, what's something you're grateful for today? Today, grateful for sunshine. Oh, my goodness. It just warms the heart, makes you want to get outside, brightens your spirit. So grateful that the sun is out. Oh, my God. Who are you telling? I second that. I mean, we had kind of a little, no pun intended, uh, April Fools with the snow belt that came through. But, you know, that's kind of expected, right? In Northeast Ohio, we get unpredictable weather at all times of the year, even in winter, right? You remember the right. one year we got 60 degrees, I think, for Thanksgiving and people were all barbecuing. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you never know what to expect with, you know, Ohio weather. So but, true. In- but Megan, you know, one thing I can say I'm grateful for today are the conversations with my mom. You know, every morning we talk and she always puts a smile on my face, whether it's something she watched on TV that was just random or just words of advice to get through my day. And honestly, I wouldn't be able to do this, you know, or, or to hear from her in the morning if I didn't work from home. So that's one thing I'm definitely grateful for. So Megan, who do we have with us today? So today we're joined by Carrie Kepik, uh, NAMI Greater Cleveland Support and Education Coordinator. Carrie's been with NAMI since 2002, uh, when she originally joined the organization as a volunteer. Uh, but she was so amazing that NAMI hired her as a staff member in 2008. Uh, so Carrie facilitates NAMI support groups and education programs, and she trains other NAMI volunteers and staff to lead NAMI programs. She is also a loving NAMI mom to an adult son who lives with bipolar disorder. We're also joined by longtime NAMI volunteer, Carol Womack on this special podcast episode about NAMI mommies. Carol leads NAMI support groups for family members of a loved one with mental illness. She also teaches family to family. She's a loving NAMI mom to an adult son who lives with schizophrenia. Welcome Carol and Carrie. Hi there. Thank you. Yes, welcome, Carrie and Carol. I mean, just great to have both of you. You know, one thing I will say is both the three of you, Megan, Carrie, and and Carol, all of you have one thing in common. All of you are moms. So, you know, Mother's Day is coming up. And, you know, question for all three of you. If you could design a Mother's Day gift basket for moms caring for someone with mental illness, what would you put in it? I'll start if because I am somebody with lived experience. I mean, I've I've said this on our introduction podcast that I do suffer from bipolar disorder. But if I designed one, I would definitely hand deliver it, hands down. If this was a world without COVID, the first thing I would do is give every recipient a Porsche hug, a bear hug, because hugs are just so empowering. I don't care what kind of mood you're in, hugs just kind of like give you a different, I don't know, breath of wind, you know, a different mm-hmm. like life for a moment. So if I, if I design my own basket, 
I would include a card, a personal card, of course, a journal, because moms could always use that time to, you know, decompress and write out their thoughts. Of course, a water bottle with motivational quotes on it, because sometimes we don't get enough water. And lastly, a gift card to get a massage. So Carrie or Kel, which, uh, which one of you wanted to start with your basket? Well, I will start. So in my basket, I would have a calm scented candle, a wonderful bubble bath gel, mm. some really good dark chocolate, Ooh. a good book with a letter in the front pages that says, it's okay to stop for a while, take care of yourself and allow yourself to feel. I might also add a puppy. There is nothing like the unconditional love that you could get from a fur friend. <laughs> that All is those sound really, really good. And so to whatever you're doing, I'll just say add a lot of little extra love and little extra patience. Mm -hmm. And puppy, yeah, I agree with the puppy. <laughs> the, the puppy takes a lot of work though you know, depending what else is going on. Right. I love those ideas. There's just so much kindness in that basket. And I think that's what uh, moms who are caregivers of, of someone with a mental illness need most of all is, is kindness and, and, and maybe some encouragement. So from, from my gift basket, I might include things like maybe a really warm, uh, soft, plush blanket, you know, to kind of wrap that mom mm -hmm. with some uh, with some love and encouragement. And I would also add that it's, it's so nice when your house smells lovely, you know, there are some fragrances that are just very soothing. So maybe like an infuser uh, with a lavender scent perhaps. And then for me as a mom uh, who has a, an adult child with a serious mental health condition, the thing that I have always appreciated from friends is hope and information. So in my gift basket, I would probably include a few books. There's a couple of books I like that have been written by parents about um, caregiving and about, you know, partnering with their child on their recovery journey. And one of those is Beautiful Boy. It was written by David Sheff. Now that's a dad. I realize we're talking about uh, moms today, but still it is just so uplifting and really sort of helps you uh, envision a future where your child will kind of overcome some of the uh, challenges that they faced. And um, I read that, you know, um, many years ago and it, I found it so inspiring. So I put some books in there and then finally <laughs> we're, we seem to be talking uh, dog versus cat. I'm more of a cat person and I'm a big fan of kittens. So if you have a household and you're, you know, you've got a space for, uh, for another uh, pet, then kittens, oh my goodness, so fun, so adorable, so cute. And, and they make everybody laugh. So, so that's what would be in my gift basket for, for Mother's Day. Oh, kittens and puppies. I, I love them both, but I, I will have to lean with Carrie and Carol. I'm more of a dog person. I did have a kitten for a little while. Her name was Smudge. And actually, it's funny now that I think about it, her and Mr. Fletcher were the same color, black and white. So the, the irony, right? <laughs> right, right. Oh, my. The irony. So Carrie and Carol, you know, tell our listeners what NAMI mommies are. I mean, I've, I've heard this you know, kind of the story from Megan, but to give our listeners a little bit more information, what is a NAMI mommy? Carol, would you like to go? <laughs> a NAMI mommy, well, I think it speaks for itself 
in that you're you are the parent of a loved one who has serious mental health issues and uh, you're on a journey and it's a roller coaster ride and you do what you can for that loved one yeah and i can i can add a little something to that too just in terms of history which i think is so cool about nami which is that NAMI was actually founded by two moms in 1977 in Madison, Wisconsin. Two moms, uh, both um, loving NAMI moms of um, adult sons with schizophrenia, got together over a kitchen table to talk about the challenges that they had in common. And from there, those two motivated uh, mothers decided that they would found a grassroots organization uh, for moms in similar circumstances who were just trying to access good care uh, for, for their sons and just find a way forward for them, you know, to live their best lives. And that organization from that kitchen table in Madison, Wisconsin has spread all across the country. It is the nation's largest advocacy organization of its kind, the largest grassroots organization of its kind. There are over 600 NAMI affiliates and in every state in, in the United States of America and a couple of territories, which I think is so amazing that the power of a, of a mother's love uh, could spawn such a, an, an, an incredibly effective national organization. Well, I agree with that. I do believe that NAMI mommies are the moms that give all, that just give everything that they have really to support their loved ones um, in every aspect of what their journey is and what our journey is as the mom. Um, it just is such an incredible um, experience. Uh, you know, when my son was diagnosed after I finally was able to talk about things, one of the biggest things that I said was that I was given my son for a reason because I was the most quiet, quiet person and never spoke. And I found a voice. And I think that's what's really important is that we are able to be that voice for some that cannot yeah. or don't have a voice or have it and haven't realized it yet. So, yeah. yeah, I love that, Carrie. I love that. And I think, you know, many people are unaware that there are about as many family caregivers of adults with mental illness as there are family caregivers of adults with dementia. Many people know someone who's a family caregiver for an adult with mental illness, and they don't even realize it. Why, why do you think it is, um, Carol and Carrie, why do you think it is that family mental health caregivers are so invisible? Well, I think an obvious thing would be the stigma that's attached to it, mm -hmm. which the mother may be willing to let it be known. I know I let friends know, but siblings don't want to be embarrassed by it and they all have their right to their privacy and for a mother to put a, this out in the open is infringing on other people's privacy so it, it gets a little complicated at this stage in my life hey I just talk about it you know it because there are more people who are impacted by it that need to hear they're not alone so uh, there, there's a line there that's sort of gray. Well, Carol, I agree with that also. I do have other children 
And they do have their own struggles with some issues of uh, mental health conditions. But, you know, I think that a lot of it is besides the stigma is that we take care of loved ones that have an illness that you can't see. And um, you can't prove it with any medical tests and things. So most people think it's like our inability to raise our children, you know, um, I'll say with positive behaviors, you know, but it's also um, really a, a hard part when, you know, people don't really see it and they see it like a lack of will for our loved ones. You know, we just have to keep um, moving on and, you know, we probably will be invisible for, for a while, but hopefully someday it'll be a better situation with better conditions and better help for people. I definitely agree with that, Carrie. I mean, when, you know, I am somebody, like I said, who struggles with, you know, mental health. And even though I'm not a parent, sometimes I feel bad because my parents don't understand they can only understand through what I'm trying to explain to them, you know, because back in, in their time, you know, hearing about mental health, it was kind of still taboo like it is now. Yep. You know, there's a, a very heavily stigma placed on mental health that it's only a thing in certain demographics and not others. So trying to break that stigma even in families can be a little, you know, trying and difficult. Oh, yes. So, Carrie, question for you and Carol. What was it like for you when you first learned that your adult child had a mental health condition? I mean, what kind of did you feel emotionally? What were kind of some things that went through your head? Well, for me, it was a lot of confusion, my son was diagnosed very young. And so there wasn't really a lot out there as far as, you know, groups and things like that, supports. Uh, it was a probably a very lonely journey in the beginning because people didn't understand, you know, and school issues and just, um, it was really, it was a nightmare. <laughs> I mean, as far as trying to deal with things and understand, I think, uh, you know, I had a lot of confusion in taking my son to the doctors and things, you know, and the therapists and the psychiatrist and medications. And I felt really at a loss of understanding because when they diagnosed my son with bipolar disorder, no one really explained what that was, especially in, in a child, you know, there's a difference in an adult with bipolar and a child with bipolar and the um, symptoms and the behaviors that came from that really just left me confused. You know, as far as going to a doctor and listening to, well, mom, how come he's doing this and what's going on here? And I never really got the whole grasp of what living with a bipolar child was, you know? And so it was a lot of confusion for me. Well, when I got hit with this, um, I had no clue what was involved. I knew that my son was acting in odd ways. I was concerned of things that he was doing, but when everything happened, when stuff hit the fan, I called a friend 
And he said, you need professional help. I went to get professional help because like I said, I had not a clue what was going on. And at the end of the second session, the psychologist said, you're not the one with the problem. Your son has the problem. There's nothing we can do for him. No program, no medication. Uh, this is our last session. If you feel like calling for support sometime, feel free to call. But that, that was it. And I knew, I knew he was wrong. I was shaking on the inside. And fortunately, I knew friends that worked with mental health agencies. And I got pointed toward the NAMI support group. And then I started taking family to family. And it's been an educational journey ever since. <laughs> but wow. uh, to have a professional tell me that I didn't have a problem, there was something wrong there, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a difficult place to be. I, I, I have two uh, adult children now, and one of them has a mental health condition. And when that family member was, was diagnosed, uh, they were still an adolescent and for me, it was kind of a unique, uh, uniquely isolating experience in a way, because I'm a mental health professional myself. I'm a licensed therapist and I, I've been in the mental health field for 25 years. So at that point in time, when that diagnosis happened, I think the only thing I can really compare it to is maybe something along the lines of like, maybe being like an oncology nurse and having a family member get a cancer diagnosis, and you know way too much about what the road ahead looks like, and you know you know what all of the difficult and painful things are that uh, could happen uh, to this person that you care about who now has this serious diagnosis, and you know you you know where to turn, and you feel like you should be able to fix it, but even so, this you know the the mental health system is so complex and uh, there aren't a lot of, there aren't enough resources out there. So, you know, at every turn, you have to be sort of um, the world's strongest advocate. You know, you really have to sort of put on your, um, the us on your chest and really go out there and advocate for your family member uh, and, and, the, and do the best you can. And, and as a professional, I had to tell myself, look, I'm, I may know a little uh, about certain things, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be any easier for me, you know, and just kind of give yourself a break and, and, and just keep putting one foot in front of the other. So that's, that's kind of what I did. Uh, but it was still the hard part for me was just sort of pacing myself and not being uh, too hard on myself just because I, I, I knew a little something more about what it was like. Um, and so I think, you know, we all face a lot of challenges as moms of persons with mental health conditions. And I'm wondering, Carrie and Carol, what do you think is the biggest challenge that moms like us experience? Well, for me, I think we spend a lot of time trying to support our loved one into really having, quote, a normal life or what we think is a normal life. And we need to allow them to have what they want in their life. And just taking that in stride and letting them be their own person is really important. But, um, you know, I think that's a big struggle for me as far as, um, you know, wanting to be there all the time to, to help and to fix. And, um, 
we need to sometimes, you know, just step back and let them be their person. I think I've learned that you can't control another person. <laughs> you mm -hmm. can't control a quote, normal person and you certainly cannot control somebody with delusional thinking. So yeah, just to listen and step back and, and like Carrie said, let them be who they are. But I tried to behind the scenes keep them from getting to pitfalls to um yeah i do a lot behind the scenes that he doesn't know i do because he'd be very upset if he knew um that to keep him safe i think my major issue is the lack of coordination between the legal system the social agencies the medical system hospitals there are so many rules including the hipaa law that complicate things that is to the detriment of our loved ones and i wish representatives from each of those areas could get together and i've i've tried to think of what i would like to put together and i can't i can't come up with a solution if i had if i won the lottery what would i do you know uh, there are just no easy answers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I hear that, that some of it is difficult because the system is complex. It's hard to figure out how to, how to navigate it. Um, some of it is complex because, you know, as the mom or the parent or the family member, you know, you're not really uh, necessarily part of uh, some of those privileged communications, you know, between like the doctor or the therapist, but you want to help, but, you know, you need to kind of find those other ways that you can help. And, and Carol, you mentioned it. It's kind of like um, being their partner, you know, learning how to be their partner. And so I think that is one of the bigger challenges that I've noticed that moms experience is just trying to figure out like how it is that they fit in, you know, and where their help is really uh, going to, going to be effective. And I think for me, you know, what I've noticed is support is a challenge too, right? Like you, when this happens to a family, I think that's when you really figure out who your friends are, you know, who is, who's going to kind of run towards you like that firefighter towards the fire with, with open arms and, and be that supportive um, listening ear, that person who's going to, you know, lend, lend that, um, that hug when you need it, let you, let you kind of talk about what's going on and who's going to run away from you, right? Like who's going to be like, Oh my, this is complicated. It's getting, getting, you know, uh, kind of tricky in here now. Uh, I think I'm going to, uh, you know, uh, head over here and, and I'll, I'll check back with her later and see how she's doing. So, so that's a challenge is just like finding out who are the people that you can really count on who's going to be there when you need them, you know, because you, you definitely do need support through, through this kind of an experience. Definitely. I agree with that. Coming from somebody who has experienced it firsthand, Carol, I can agree with you, the disconnect. It's like the pie that's been cut. You know, you have all these pieces, you have the medical system, the legal system, then you have, you know, the outside entities and other stimuli that don't help a person with mental health, you know, conditions. So I, I can definitely attest to that. I wish that there was a more simplified approach, especially for parents, you know, like you, Carol, Carrie, and Megan, when you have a child that you're fighting for every mm -hmm. single day, you want them to be as close to quote unquote normal as they can be. 
but mm-hmm. kind of like what you know Carrie said that you have to let them be their own person but at the same time you don't want society who doesn't understand their language I put it as their language really because it is they don't understand it so it looks strange it's it's a threat to them because it's not based in societal norms so I would love to one day be able to come up with a effective system where all parties work together mental health professionals even you know like on a few of our episodes we've talked about different ways that police handle mental health crises so just getting everybody on the same page to be able to have children like you know yours carol yours carrie and also megan to have a chance in society and not be ostracized like it often has been so we're gonna uh, take a quick break right here on not alone the land podcast everybody stick with us we've got a great topic All right, everybody, welcome back to Not Alone in the Land podcast. I'm joined with my co-host, Miss Megan Rochford, and also our two NAMI mommies, Miss Carrie and also Miss Carol. And we've just been having a great conversation about what NAMI mommies really go through and what it's like to, you know, have a child with a mental health condition and all the different hoops and hurdles that they often have to go through. So... I know in NAMI support groups and education programs, people talk a lot about the concept of the aha moment, right? We've all had those. So Carol and Carrie, have you experienced such an aha moment as a NAMI mom? And how was it a turning point for you? Well, I um, had mentioned that my son was diagnosed young and in the beginning there wasn't a lot of support and things for families of young people. Um, There was one teen group but it seemed that every time I would attempt to go to that group would be the day that my son would have a crisis of some sort and I would not be able to leave the house. But I did have an aha moment when I took family to family class Um, It was the first time really that I was in a group with people that had children or family members that were like my son and families that were struggling with a lot of the same things that I had um, been struggling with. So my aha moment came with the family to family class in realizing that a lot of things were not my fault, being able to uh, try to learn how to talk with my son in a a little bit different way, Um, just really um, realizing, I think, that these were illnesses. And, uh, you know, there was such a difference in going to therapy. And I was always involved in the therapy with my son and the psychiatrist because he was diagnosed young. So in the beginning, I didn't have to deal with the as much as all of that until he was 18. But just going from one thing to a therapist and then going into a family to family class and realizing the total different concept of how um, to deal with my son just made the, you know, the, the whole experience really, I mean, I will never 
ever talk, uh, I, I will talk up family to family for the rest of my life because it really did save my life as, as far as understanding what was going on with my son. So um, my aha moment really came when I took the class and realized that um, there are other people out there like me and um, I do have a voice and I can, you know, support my son and he is a good person. Yeah, I just love I'd like stories to back like that. Up, um, with what Carrie said in that the first family to family class I took, it was in the fall around Thanksgiving and the teachers gave out little whatever to different members of the class. And for me, they gave me a tray that was uh, more obviously, anyway, what it did was it affirmed that my son had a serious problem. It wasn't my imagination. And it was truly supportive. And I was surprised that I was the one they picked as having a serious problem compared to others in the class. And so that, that certainly was an aha moment of confirmation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's obviously different for every mom and Carrie, I was starting to say earlier how I, how much I love those stories of how NAMI in particular can make the difference for, for moms. And I think, you know, what we all have in common is that there, you know, inevitably there's a, there's a, like a, a learning process that goes on kind of a, a growth process that goes on. And for some of us, it's a particular uh, experience we can tie it to. And for others of us, it's more, you know, of, of a gradual kind of, awareness and realization of how we can adapt to our, our circumstances in life and how we can, you know, be the best mom we can, can, can be. But for me, it was a little bit more like uh, Carrie's experience in that I had this particular moment that occurred and it was, I know this is going to sound strange, but it was while I was watching a, a television program and it's uh, a show that was actually written uh, produced and acted in by a, a stand-up comic named Tig Notaro. She did this series on Amazon Prime called One Mississippi. And it was about her, basically a memoir of her experience growing up real young, where she, you know, just really struggled in life. And she, I think she's repeated eighth grade, I believe she said eight times uh, without successfully graduating. And she never really could understand what, you know, what her difficulty was in life. But as I watched the, this series that she had written about herself and I, and I, I witnessed how she really just sort of paid tribute to her own strengths as a person and, and talked about how she, you know, eventually found where she belonged in life and where her talents and her abilities really allowed her to kind of blossom into the person she was meant to be despite having had learning difficulties, you know, despite having had this history of pretty serious depression and, and trauma, um, I, it dawned on me that what she was also kind of telling was the story of my own family members experience that despite their own challenges, you know, that they were going to, eventually they were going to be okay. They were going to find their place in the world and it didn't have to be what everybody else thought it was, you know, like obviously everybody thinks that in order to be successful, you got to get out of eighth grade. Well, not necessarily, right? Like that's not net, that's not necessarily how the wor world works. Uh, success can look like whatever your loved one wants it to look like. 
And, and as a mom, all you have to do is be there to support and cheerlead for them and encourage them and help them along the way. And things are going to work out. So for me, that aha moment was just Tignataro's willingness to like put it out there, you know, that this is what she went through and just be really open and honest about her own mental health recovery journey. And that helped me as a mom. It was pretty cool. That sounds excellent. I'm going to have to look into her. (laughs) (laughs) Really? She's awesome. Well, my son, you know, didn't, um, he quit high school at, or we withdrew him basically at his second attempt of the ninth grade. And it wasn't for lack of intelligence, but the, the illness that got away. So that story can sort of resonate, you know, yeah. how, how that goes. So, yeah. And I think that's one thing that we can do as NAMI moms is, you know, speak our own truth about that. Like it is, it is literally okay for your loved one to need to not be in school at that point. They're, Mm -hmm. They're ill, right? If they need to recover from a serious illness, then they need to recover from a serious illness. And I, I think if there was one thing that I would say about that maybe is that it's important for us as, as now moms to kind of, you know, be, be open about that, that it's uh, when you're supporting your, your uh, loved one through an experience like that, that we, you know, it's okay to think a little bit differently about what success looks like and kind of redefine that. Yep. You know, so, so all of us, if we were to, um, you know, kind of think, think through that, we would, we would say, Hey, yeah, you know, we need to be a little bit more flexible in our thinking. Right. Yes. Portia, did you want to add something to that? Yeah, I definitely do. Megan, you made me think about when I was in middle school, I didn't get diagnosed until I was an adult versus I know, you know, the three of you was kind of like for your kids being younger, but that took me back a moment to when I was in middle school. And when you talked about, you know, how people won't be successful, you know, unless they complete the eighth grade. I recall one of my teachers at one time, I won't, you know, go into who they are, but I remember them distinctly saying only people with A's will succeed in life. And it made me chuckle when they said that when I was Mm -hmm. young, I said, huh, And when I think about that and when I look at my life right now, despite all the different challenges and hurdles that I've been through having a mental health diagnosis, I consider myself very successful. I mean, to me, grades don't define you. But Mm -hmm. to me, you know, as for the three of you, Carol, Megan and Carrie, I agree when it comes to being open to a different approach for getting, you know, getting help for your kids or even just ensuring their success. I think sometimes because of the way society has things set up, we don't want to not fit in, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. And I think we are all kind of like guilty of that. I mean, I am. I had to really take a step back when I was trying so hard to be like everybody else, but I had to say, I'm not. I dance to my own drum beat. Yeah. Once (laughs) once we figure that out, then kind of like goes back to what you said, Megan, that they'll be successful eventually. It will eventually happen. Mm -hmm. And I I love that saying. I said that about my son when he was about four months old, that he was going to 
well, um, they, you know, dance to a different drum. I mean, that was it. It was just, <laughs> I knew it from the very beginning and um, that's our road. It's okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely agree with that. And you have to just own it. I think that's really what it boils down to is owning it, that you yes. dance to a different drum beat, walk with it. Don't, you know, let the rest of the world's misunderstanding bring you down. Yeah. One, you know, one of my favorite songs by Lady Gaga is Born This Way. Yep. I love yes. that song mm -hmm. because it really tells it like it is. You're born this way. Exactly. Roll with it. Own who you are. Be you. Be unique. That's right. That's right. Definitely. Megan, was there something else you wanted to add? I would just say, you know, that um, I think along the way, you know, a part of uh, being who you are and kind of owning it is also about sort of breaking the stigma, right? So I think as a society, we need to think about ways that we maybe are a little judgy of people who have mental health conditions, you know, especially for, for Carrie and I, the education system, super hard to manage that, you know, and yes. I think that's a place yeah. where without like, maybe I don't necessarily want to be like throwing teachers under the bus here. That's not what I'm saying. And so I hope that's not how people are understanding this, but I do think that it would be important for educators just to have a, more training, you know, on what mm -hmm. mental health conditions look like, what stigmatizing language sounds like, mm -hmm. how to provide appropriate accommodations in a classroom, you know, and just how to like, be accepting of these kids, you know, like it's not, everything is not always going to follow, you know, a certain track and that is okay. As we've all talked about, you know, the kids are going to find their own way in the world, but that, that path can be so much easier for them and frankly safer for them. If, if the school system is maybe a little better prepared and educated and, and willing, you know, to be part of that, uh, process. I think one one really heartbreaking story I heard recently was from a dad uh, who's who actually works for Anami in another state. He was talking about you know his um, his son having gone to uh, college here in Northeast Ohio uh, and developing a mental health condition while he was here, and unfortunately. Um, he didn't do very well, you know, not, not, not through any lack of trying on his part, but certainly because the son uh, feared taking medication. He didn't want people at his university, his classmates, his professors, uh, his teammates. He didn't want people at his university to know that he had a mental illness. Right. And why is that? Because he was afraid of being judged. So he did not take his medication. He did not go to treatment. And unfortunately uh, that young man ended up dying by suicide. And so stigma kills. Let's just say it you yep. know, like it is. Stigma kills. If people are so afraid that you're going to find out that you have the mental health condition, that they won't get the treatment that could potentially save their life, then there's a, something we really, all of us need to work on as far as you know, being accepting, getting educated about it, learning as much as we can, making as much change as we can within ourselves, about how we uh, interact with that student and how we support that student and set them up for success. Amen to that. I definitely agree. NAMI Greater Cleveland has a class called Understanding Mental Illness that I think should be taken by really all teachers 
um, all lawyers, all medical staff. I, it's one thing to to learn about it on paper. It's another thing to experience it in life. Yeah. And I I don't blame somebody for not understanding until it hits them personally. But taking that class could help provide some empathy and understanding. And definitely, I wish that teachers would have that, especially health teachers teaching a group of students that, that need the support also. Amen to that, Carol. There's so many resources that NAMI can offer just to kind of help people get started, you know, open up the conversation. And, and I think that's a great idea. I second that. I definitely do. Cause I think, you know, coming from somebody, like I said, me, you know, living with, you know, bipolar disorder, when I first learned about my diagnosis, I'm like, what, what does this mean? I'm thinking of some cartoon where you see the sun and the rain in the same scene, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's literally what I'm seeing. And I'm like, huh? So definitely I agree with, you know, you, Carol and Megan, that those types of classes are, are, value they really need to have a priority on that for educators lawyers social workers etc to really be inclusive of you know people who you know like myself who struggle with mental health that way we don't feel so ostracized from everybody so mm -hmm. you know banished from society type of thing you know so that kind of leads to you know a question for all three of you that i have Describe a proud moment for you as a NAMI mom, whether it was recently, a few years ago. What was a proud moment for the three of you as a NAMI mom? Well, I will start. Um, my son graduated yesterday from an accelerated um, coding course, similar. It's, uh, it was a 14-week class that he took for really trying to find a, a, a better way of life for himself and his wife. Um, they, uh, I think also um, just having things that they accomplish, uh, you know, are very, very important. But I would probably say that one of the proudest moments that I had was when, unfortunately, Robin Williams took his life my son was really, um, he's a very empathetic soul, and he was really um, heartbroken over that, basically. I mean, he just really felt that impact, and, you know, he was able to, you know, put out there how, you know, like intelligent Robin Williams was, and that, that in, you know, the way he was, and uh, what he did, how he got to people, but my son wrote me a letter and sent it um, in an email. And it was about, thank you, mom, for doing all that you do for me and for other people, because maybe you could help somebody not do this, not take their life. And that will stay with me probably forever, because in, the, in a way, it made me realize that my son understands, um, you know, even if he didn't all really understand his illness or have that acceptance totally, he understood the impact of what we do um, from NAMI period, you know, and what commitment and time um, 
that I put in how it could really help someone. And he was able to realize that. And to me, that was just, it was the most excellent thing I could have ever, ever gotten. Wow. That's beautiful. I don't know if proud is the actual word that I would use. Uh, I am pleased that the journey, the painful journey I've taken can, can help others as they're going through their own journeys. I'm also really, really thankful that although my son has uh, disconnected with me um, a few times, that at this point in his life, he's asking for a hug. And so um, it's just a relationship is just so, so very important. Nothing is gonna happen unless our loved ones have a relationship with a therapist, a psychiatrist, you know, nothing positive is going to happen until they themselves want it to happen. And you have to have a relationship for that to happen. So important to have that relationship. I really resonate with that, Carol. It's, um, and I think that, you know, that's one of the things that has been, I think, helpful in terms of like supporting my own family member on their recovery journey is that we have a good relationship, a strong relationship. And I think for me, uh, one of the uh, proudest moments I had as a mom when uh, occurred when this was family member, as I mentioned, was an adolescent. And so they were in a program for adolescents and there was another uh, person in that program that my family member became aware of who was having thoughts about hurting themselves. And as young as um, my child was at the time, they knew that this was something that required help, right? That required adult help. And so they, uh, they came and woke uh, me up, my husband and I in the middle of the night and said, we need to do something about this. And, and we all kind of brainstormed a way to get some help for this person. And I thought, wow, this is just such a, you know, a testament to, um, my child's empathy and uh, strength as a person that even as unwell as they are, that they're able to, you know, be compassionate for, for someone else and to, and to try to help this other, other person. And I'll just add that another uh, proud moment happened for us uh, just within the, you know, this, this year, 2021, uh, my family member found a, a, a new job and uh, has started working at that job and managed to do that, you know, even during uh, this pandemic and this historic epic event that's been so stressful and so difficult for everyone, but, but there they are, they're out there and having a lot of success at it and really having fun at it. And I'm, I'm just, it's honestly, it's been one of the best things to happen in such a long time. Certainly, absolutely the best thing to happen for our family during the pandemic. So, so that's my, my proud NAMI mom moment. Yeah, congratulations. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yes, yes, I second that, Megan. I mean, and that also for you, Megan, being a clinician, you know, that kind of like, you know, I've heard this saying before that we leave a legacy mm -hmm. about ourselves through our kids. Yeah. And, you know, that kind of like leaves a part of you with him, the fact that he had that intuition young. Megan, this has been a fantastic conversation. Even though I'm not a parent, you know, I can say that 
for me, I took on this journey because I knew other people who looked like me needed help. Yeah. And I had to step out on faith with it. Mm-hmm. And I do it from the heart to encourage other people to seek help for their mental health and do it for you. Not just for your family, do it for you. Because when you do it for you, that's who the real benefit is for. Megan, what are your final thoughts? Just take care of yourselves, NAMI moms. You know, don't be uh, afraid to ask for your own help. I think that's one of the best things I did on my own journey was to uh, get some help for myself. And so just know that NAMI is here for you. We have support groups. We have family education programs. We have a helpline. And, um, you know, just... Just, just be willing to do it for yourself. Put on that oxygen mask, Nami moms. Absolutely. And, and Megan, I definitely second that for Megan. This could probably be another idea for Nami to do maybe a Nami moms retreat type of thing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> love I, it. I have done that a number of years ago. I did have a, a mom's retreat for moms that had lived with, you know, the experience of dealing with a child that had a mental health condition. It was just for a day, um, but it was just so nice to be able to um, experience with other people, you know, taking care of ourselves. I mean, it was, that that was like my mission for years. I wanted to do one and I finally got the possibility to do one. And it was such a nice experience. We didn't have a lot of people attend but it was great hey some is better than none i mean that to me that almost needs to be an an inclusive thing weekly considering that we're still kind of in covid and and look moms need just as much as care as the kids so that concludes another episode of not alone in the land podcast everyone thanks for listening take care (laughs) 